Welcome to Her Legal Global. I'm your host, Faye Gelb. Our podcast is dedicated to providing you with actionable skills to empower your legal career. And today we're welcoming Bina Stock, who's here to talk to us about the confidence gap. Bina is the founder of Succeed Counseling and is a registered clinical counselor and lawyer. She was called to the Bar of British Columbia in 1992 and has practiced primarily in the areas of professional negligence and insurance defense litigation for 24 years. She left the practice of law in 2015 to pursue a master's degree in counseling. She embarked on the provision of counseling services in private practice, and she went on to become the associate director with LAP, the Lawyer's Assistance Program of British Columbia. Bina assists clients in the areas of anxiety, depression, relationship issues, addiction. And another interesting aspect of your career switch, Bina, is that you also have the career transition advancement and time management aspect that so many women, I think, in mid-career are looking to find more information about. Is that something that you've been finding as well? Absolutely. It does come at all stages. There are many young lawyers who are looking for different shifts in, in their career, but also later on in life as well. It's been, it's been a great thing that I can offer to, to many people. I noticed here too that you're a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. That's an interesting side. You're still doing Taekwondo? No, I retired in 2008 after I got my third degree. The reality of martial arts is when you when you get to a certain level there there are not a lot of women and generally my opponents were men and so I, i'd had enough by about third degree but yes it was a great balance uh, for wow. practicing law so i just wanted to before we start going into our topic today which is the confidence gap i just wanted to ask a little bit about that pivot where you went from practicing law for so many years and went into the counseling what was it that was your decision process there how did it come to be well, thank you for asking and, and using the word process because it really was a process. I was so fortunate to have a great work environment. I worked at Harper Gray for 21 years doing medical negligence and insurance defense work. Um, and that allowed me to blend my interests of science and, and law together. My first degree was psychology. And after a while, I, I started becoming curious whether I would be practicing law for the next 20 years. And I thought I would dip my toe in the water part-time. And I started going to school on a Saturday. And I love every minute of it. And that began my journey of counseling. So I hired a counselor. I hired a coach who specialized transitioning lawyers out of law to make sure that I did my own personal work. And it really was when I had an experience to work as claims counsel at the Lawyers Insurance Fund, where I went in-house for the end of my career as a lawyer, um, where I was working with lawyers who would report as claims counsel, it was my duty to, to work with people who thought they'd made a mistake or had made a mistake. And to be able to help support them emotionally through that experience was really the, the, what cinched the deal for me, that this is the part of the job that I really liked the most, that I loved. And if I was going to make that transition, I should do it now. And uh, I went back to school full time and became a registered clinical counselor. Wow, that's quite the journey. How long did it take you to, to make the transition? Well, I started the part-time program in 2011, actually, and then stepped away for a couple of years when I had an opportunity to go in-house with the Lawyers Insurance Fund, and then jumped back in full-time in 2015. So it was, it was a bit of a longer journey than perhaps normal, but I'm really glad that I've arrived at the destination because it, it really doesn't feel like work. I really love what I do. 
So there it is. I think that's the big test is, is your career energizing you? And it sounds like you've made the, the perfect choice. The topic that we chose for today to talk about is the confidence gap. This is something that I think we all secretly know that women have and that we try very hard to overcome. So I understand that you've done some research, some writing on this area. Can you tell us a bit about the background to your work here? Yes, I was inspired when I read an article on The Atlantic by Katie Kay and Claire Shipman on the confidence gap. And that inspired me to make that the topic of my thesis when I did my master's degree. I broadened the thesis a bit to looking at the causes and consequences of the gender wage gap, but really uh, took a deep dive into confidence because I think that it is the underpinning of so many things that we do. And what was really interesting from a lot of the research is that sometimes as women, we actually hold ourselves back. There are so many opportunities that we can take that we don't. And that confidence piece is key. And there's a lot of new research that's showing that confidence is as important as competence at the jobs that we do. And so that's why I, I, I took that on as a passion. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that comes to play in the workforce? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, the confidence gap, these authors, Katie Kay and Claire Shipman, they describe it as a, a chasm that stretches across all professions. It's not unique to lawyers and all income levels and all generations. And it shows up in so many areas for women in so many different ways. And I want to tell you a little bit about the research because I think that sometimes that can be helpful for us to identify when it might be coming up for us, right? The more you know, the more information you have, better able you are to identify situations. And then you can perhaps make some changes in your personal life. I think that's Um, perfect. If you're in a particular communication and you're sitting there with the partner and you want to convey a particular message, this is extremely important. It is, absolutely. So let me delve into some of the research. I know it sounds a bit geeky, but it's I find it fascinating. There's been studies that show that when you survey men, that the majority of men aspire to reach higher levels, aspire to reach the C-suite, where a significantly fewer proportion of women do. And when you look at what tasks women and men look for in the workplace, research shows that men are more motivated to approach success, whereas women are more motivated to avoid failure. And that's quite critical because I know you've already talked about mindset, right? That frames our mindset. Why do we, why do, we do this? Why do we not take opportunities when they are offered to us. There's been studies that have shown that women will wait until they fulfill 100% of the criteria before they put their hat in the ring for a promotion, let's say. Exactly. Whereas men will wait until they fulfill only approximately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't found that study yet, but 60% is generally what they say. But, you know, I think that's really important because what that says is that Women who are overqualified and overprepared don't lean into these opportunities. And that advocating for yourself, that taking that opportunity, the bull by the horns, is something that we really have a reluctance to do. And examining that, becoming more confident in being able to do that, can make a shift. Mm -hmm. And I think it begins sometimes with the stories that we tell ourselves. Sometimes we're not our best friends when it comes to the narrative that plays in our head, right? So our self-talk. Um, 
our self-talk, that basic cognitive behavior therapy. What if I fail? What if people laugh at me? What if I fill in the blank, right? That fear can really hold us back. And you know, just take for a moment, like just even just preparing for this podcast, right? So say you have something to do that's really important at work. And if you imagine yourself doing a presentation and people stop paying attention, or maybe they start doing multitasking and they're working, or maybe they pull out their phones, right? How are you going to feel? Right. You're not going to feel pretty good about yourself, right? But if you imagine yourself going into that presentation, that people are engaged, they're leaning forward, maybe they're taking notes. Maybe you have a PowerPoint and they get up and they take pictures of your slide. That image, right? That Mm -hmm. makes a huge difference to us in terms of how we think about challenges and how we approach challenges. And nothing builds confidence like actually taking action. So basically, once we learn a skill and what we're doing with our podcast, which is to drill them down to a skill... That's taking the action. That's actually implementing the knowledge. That's gaining a a different level of skill. And it will change us. We will grow by doing these exercises. We will. We will. And another thing that I think is sometimes helpful for us to think about also is what we don't do and how our inaction, the things that we don't do, plays into our confidence and our opportunities in the work environment. So quite often we hold ourselves back because we perceive barriers that don't exist. We might think that there's only a black or white solution to the problem, that our situation isn't as flexible as it otherwise is. And and if I can share a personal example of how that happened to me in the beginning of my career, after I had my, my first child. And I went back to work full time. My husband's also a commercial litigator. So there's a lot of negotiation that goes on. And I'm a trial lawyer and I went to a lot of trials when I was a junior. And I can remember doing the math one day and my nanny was netting almost as much as me in terms of being paid overtime and double overtime. And, and it just got a bit onerous. And so I had lunch with my mentor who was the managing partner at the time, now a court of appeal justice. He's, he's an amazing person. And I tendered my resignation. I just thought I couldn't do it. Wow. And he looked at me and he said, uh, no. And I thought, yeah, I've never really done this before, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's not how it works. Yes. And he said, he said, no. He said, I, I want you to go back and I want you to think of a part-time option because we want you to stay and we'd like you to come back part-time. And now we're talking the late 90s in a relatively big firm, uh, downtown Vancouver. And so that's a really good example of thinking that our situations are, uh, are inflexible. So we need to be able to perhaps uh, look at opportunities, look outside the box. The other thing that sometimes happens, I think, that contributes to our confidence gap is that we as women are often really good at just putting our head down and doing the work. Right. Mm-hmm. That's um, me. Mm-hmm, right. And, and assuming that people are going to notice that we're doing great work. And yes, that should happen, right? And if there's opportunities, they should be shared and everybody should have an equal chance to pursue them. But you're nodding. I know that this is a podcast, but we're on video, you and I right now. We all know of situations, either personally or of colleagues, where that simply doesn't happen. 
And some researchers call this the tiara syndrome. And I like using phrases so that hopefully they'll remind your listeners when it's happening to them. And the tiara syndrome goes like this. You put your head down and work and you hope that eventually somebody's going to notice and put a tiara on your head, right? Figuratively speaking. And that doesn't happen all the time, right? We have to take that opportunity. We have to take responsibility and, and, Take I agree. Our own risks. I think it rarely happens. I think if you don't advocate for yourself, you don't network, you end up in a situation where your work simply can't be the advocate that you thought it would be. So it really leaves you high and dry. That was my experience. Absolutely. And that networking piece, that can be difficult because we're not that great at self-promotion sometimes. And, and here's the thing for women, it's not always a linear relationship. It doesn't always lead to success when we do that self-promotion. We actually have to be pretty careful because there's research that shows that there's a social and economic backlash for women who are assertive. So how do you and, suggest that we go about this then? Yeah, uh, because what we're doing is we're trying to negotiate this likability peace when we try to self-promote. One of the things that we need to recognize is that this puts us sometimes essentially in a double bind, right? You're damned if you're doing, you're damned if you don't. So how do you step outside of that in a way that's comfortable to you and not threatening to other people? And one of the things that research has shown that uh, can be helpful for women is to, to take a group approach in the sense of being sensitive to the reality that sometimes the circumstances are that we're working with a team, that we need to acknowledge our team. We also need to make sure that we take credit where credit is due and not simply gratuitously give it away to others, but we need to look for that collaborative piece so that there's less of a threat, there's more likability, there's more approachability. And it's quite interesting because there's a distinction in this research, and that is that when women are working in male-dominated fields like law, we tend to give that away more quickly than we do when we're working with other women. In what way? In terms of giving away the credit. So the I like to call it the uh, I couldn't have done it without you peace, right? Somebody will commend you on the work that you've done and you quickly say, oh yeah, but I couldn't have done it without so-and-so and so-and-so. So we need to learn to say, thank you. Yes, I put a lot of work into it. Here was my contribution and not Here's but. what the team did. Exactly. So the likability part is, how does that all play out? Like, what are we talking about there? Because that's a bit of a surprise to me that we are doing a likability thing when we're actually in a business setting. So how does that work? Well, it shows that the the way it comes up is that women tend to be more collaborative. And also there's a distinction in the language that we use. So if we go right back to basics and we look at even young children, gender differences in languaging, linguistics have shown, linguistic studies have shown that boys tend to be hierarchical in their conversation. So if you see some boys sitting at a playground, they might talk about how, you know, I can hit the baseball down the block. Well, I can hit the baseball to the moon. It's all about who can do something better, one upping, versus women who connect through similarities. 
So a woman will share a story and the other woman, or if it's a girl, you know, I have a red dress. Well, I have a red dress at home too. Tomorrow, let's both wear our red dresses together. It's a way to connect through similarities. And we look for those commonalities. Men are connecting through the hierarchy. Women are connecting through the similarities. We each have exactly the same goal and that's connection. We just do it differently. And we carry that with us into our professional world as well. So for instance, if a woman is delegating a task to, let's say, an assistant, the language might be, hey, can you do me a favor? I need to have these briefs copied by tomorrow. Can you take care of that for me? That kind of language. If a superior hears that, there might be a risk of that person taking away the perception that that woman doesn't have the self-confidence to manage people below her. She doesn't appreciate the hierarchical difference. Whereas the woman fully appreciates the difference. It's the way that she's able to communicate and work together collegially with another woman. What would a man do in that circumstance? Well, I can tell you, I can hear my husband since we're all in COVID right now and we're in the same room. There is not that same kind of language. And I suspect some of your listeners might be nodding their head if they hear this, right? It will be, I need you to X, Y, and Z, and I need that by this time and that time. And I know when I have some practice, I don't think I ever talked about, talked that way. I felt more that it was important to foster a team that we're in this together. So I think that that's a big distinction as well that sometimes might work to our detriment. So when you're in a group and you're trying to get that, you go back to what you said earlier, which is that you take the credit, but you also share after taking the credit. So I think that that can make a distinction and that can be helpful. So that basically is how to avoid the backlash that occurs if you're being too assertive. Like you can also go the other way because women can also come, if they try and imitate the way that men are delivering this model, it also doesn't work. Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing that can be helpful is when we look at perhaps looking at an example of negotiations. So when a woman negotiates, the research has shown that we will have a better outcome if we are negotiating for someone other than just ourselves. That's interesting. Why? mm -hmm. Um, Well, when a woman is advocating just for herself, when she's in a negotiation just for herself, the studies show that they will capitulate more quickly than men or women who are negotiating for a team. So if you're thinking of, you know, if you're a litigator and you're trying to settle a file, well, you're, you're negotiating for your client. So that's easy to do. If you're negotiating for your salary, it's your annual review. Well, maybe you think about this is for my family. This is for my mortgage. This is for my future. This is for my family as a team. So negotiating, not just for you, but for yourself. And again, that's consistent with that communal approach that's distinct for women. And that has shown or research has shown that you can have a better outcome if you take that approach. So if we approach these different types of communication that we want to do and we do it through a team approach in our mind, it's our mindset, getting back to that mindset, then we would be able to have more success. And we were talking earlier, there's still a big gap in the the pay between men and women. So this is one way that we can all begin to look at how we can decrease that right from inside without anything being put in place. It's with our mindset and with the skills that we're developing in terms of how to approach, how to convey the the empowerment that we have, but not detracting from what we're trying to do by creating a backlash. 
Yeah, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when we talk about the actual wage gap, one of the studies that really blew me away when I started doing this research that, that stuck with me is a study that looked at MBA students and their starting salaries and found that uh, on average, uh, women right out the gate in their first year were earning $4,000 less than men with exactly the same degree coming out of exactly the same university. And the researchers were curious why that was and looked at who negotiated their first salaries and found that only 7% of women negotiated their first salaries, whereas 57% of men did, almost eight times as much. So when you think of your first salary, I mean, I know I didn't negotiate my first salary. You mean just basically accept what they say, this is it, and you take it, and that's the way it is? I worked for the government. I don't think there was a lot (laughs) not to negotiate there, but... Absolutely fair. Sometimes you don't have that that option. But in the private sector, you do, right? And and if you're starting behind the, you know, one whole cohort, one whole group, that's going to follow you as you progress in your career. And so as you climb the ladder, you will always be earning less. And that's what the data shows that the more senior you become, the wider the gap actually gets between men and women. And so one of the things I'm hoping the listeners will become aware of is, A, your circumstances are a lot more flexible than you think they are. And that includes making changes vis-a-vis your remuneration. And that might be vis-a-vis flexibility in your work environment as well. It doesn't necessarily just have to be money. With COVID coming out and changing our lives completely, I think it's an amazing time for people to get their minds around this concept because there's all kinds of ways that we could be delivering legal services. And with a little bit of innovation, we could be able to achieve, for example, much more of a life uh, work balance than before by being able to work at home, being able to work part-time, being able to share a position being able to take some time off on a regular basis so that you can pursue other interests, especially I find as you go through your career, it begins to get to a point where you actually go, okay, wait a minute, I've been here for a while. I want to come up and smell the roses and see if there's something else I would like to do. So that's why I was asking you earlier about your, your switch and your pivot, because I myself found that I didn't do that because my career kept changing within the Crown office. I kept doing different roles. So I didn't feel the need to pivot. But I really do think that that starts at a a much earlier time period than 20 years. Are you finding that with your coaching clients? Yeah, it definitely. And, and, you know, that's interesting that I want to add that sometimes it's not just a gender thing. You know, as, as lawyers, both men and women start to reflect on whether this is the career that they want. And that sort of dovetails with another one of my research passions that you and I spoke about briefly, and that is the succession planning and the millennials um, and the generations. And so I am seeing a lot of younger lawyers who want to stay in law. They've worked really hard to get where they are, but not with the model that you and I I was called in 1992. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Me too. And fair. Right. And so, and so it's having the confidence to have those kinds of conversations and, and recognizing that you have so much value to offer. And let's face it, the clients are the same generation as well. And so it behooves law firms to 
perhaps become flexible and, and listen to some of the younger people. And a very informative and I think a very transformative talk if we implement what you've had to tell us about. So thank you very much. Per Legal Global, empowering and transforming us through skills and shared wisdom.